0: Good morning, everyone. We're uh, we're continuing our letter or our our sermon series, sorry, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians uh, today. Well, we'll get into this a little bit, but today we're we're kind of passing the midpoint of the book, turning the corner from Paul talking about the more theological, more theoretical aspects that he talks to them about, transitioning into okay, what do we do now? Uh, how do we live this out? So in case, in case you hadn't noticed it, uh, we live in a world where social media really influences a lot of what we do, and we might talk about that a little bit more later and maybe on a deeper level, but I'd like to start us with something a little bit on the lighter side. You know, sites like Instagram and, and Pinterest and things, they give us a really idealized version of what's possible in life. And I don't think any of us are immune from maybe buying in a bit too much to that idealized version of things. And we get these situations where we have this expectation because of something we saw on the Internet. I, I think, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago talked a little bit about visiting Moraine Lake in uh, in Banff National Park. And you have the expectations for what Moraine Lake is going to be looking like when you get there. You see it on the postcards and you see it on the travel blogs and on the Instagram uh, channels or uh, people that have their, that travel a lot. And they post all these beautiful pictures of what it's like. It's this serene thing. It's beautiful. It's the wilderness. And then you have the reality of actually going there and there's a million other people there, you imagine, because you saw it portrayed that way, that it would be this peaceful, maybe even transcendent thing. And you'd be sitting there on the rock pile, contemplating the beauty of God's creation. And then you get there, and instead of that, you're fighting for a place to park, and you're dodging selfie sticks because people are taking pictures all over the place, and you're breathing in diesel fumes because there's 14 tour buses idling right over there, and it's nothing like you see in the pictures another hilarious genre of this concept and this is this is a real pinterest thing if any of you are into that just google pinterest fails it's good for a lot of laughs it, it involves food right so you see you see the the reality versus the expectation here some of these are some of these are painful to look at some of them i think might just be honest mistakes like People just picked a project that was way beyond their baking ability, and it turned out badly. This one, though, this, they did not even try. Like, I'm sure the recipe told you how many Kit Kat bars you were supposed to buy, and someone thought, oh, I don't need that many. And I'm pretty sure that's a piece of saran wrap instead of a ribbon. Like, that, that's just poor. They did not try. Now, the Apostle Paul... He's going to start by talking about kind of a similar concept, but at a spiritual level. So if you want to open up your Bibles, and if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to do a little reading. Remember, like I said, we're kind of turning the corner in the movement of the book in this passage. Ephesians 4, and we're just going to start right at the beginning of the chapter. If you want to stand, as we typically do for the reading of our sermon text, Ephesians 4, it's a bit of a long passage. We'll read right to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. So today's text, it really could be Two sermons in a lot of ways. Uh, We'll take it kind of in two parts in the time that we have. Like I said, we've moved into the second half of Paul's letter. And and the the first passage we're going to look at that makes up this whole text, the first bit is kind of the transition where where Paul really says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move from all these things that I've been telling you into what are we actually going to do in order to live that out. Paul spends the first three chapters announcing big, important things. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. You were were alienated from God, you Gentiles, but God has now brought Jews and Gentiles together into one body. He'll spend the second half of the letter explaining what that will look like in practice. So today we transition from abstract to concrete, from doctrine to application, from theory to Practice. There's been revelation of who God is and what he's done in Christ, and now there's the application of what we're actually going to do in light of that on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis. And important for Paul, and important for our current sermon series, the focus here is on how we work this out and walk this out together as the body. So he starts off with a broad statement of what this looks like in practice. And he he continues to, to work on this from different angles as we go throughout the passage. The general statement is this. Walk, that is live, in a manner worthy of the calling which God has placed on you. So what's the calling? I believe it's twofold. First, the individual call to holiness and discipleship. Second, the corporate call to work that out, to be the one body. Now, we in our society are likely to focus on the former, right, because we are pretty individualistic. But Paul is pretty keen to see that lived out in the latter, in the being of the body. It's not enough just to know facts about God and to avoid personal sins and, and so forth. Remember, for Paul, the clearest evidence that the gospel has taken root is that there's this one body thing happening, right? Changed lives leading to a changed community, which he often likens to a body. The word Paul uses here when he talks about worthy in Greek is axios. Worthy is a fine translation, but the idea here primarily has to do with with correspondence or with resemblance. That is, when you look at the one thing and the other thing, is there a correspondence? Is there a resemblance? Is the one thing like the other? Is this a worthy representation of this thing? When you look at the call of Christ and then you look at your own walk, how close is the resemblance? We chuckle when we look at these, these sort of failures that people have in duplicating something they saw on the internet. And like, Ooh, that's pretty bad. There's a certain humor in seeing something that just bears enough of a resemblance to kind of be grotesque and weird looking. But what about our spiritual lives? How do they look when we hold up our actual walk alongside the calling we've received, which looks a lot like our Lord Jesus? Ooh, suddenly that's not so funny anymore, is it? Thankfully, if the resemblance is off, there are steps we can take. There are things we can do. Paul will get there in the second part of our passage today. But first, he spends some time digging a little deeper into what specifically this walking looks like and why it matters. Because he says, walk in the manner worthy of the calling that you've received. But what does that look like? Well, thankfully, Paul goes there right away. It's evident as we live together as believers. He mentions a number of things that we'll, we'll just look at here briefly. Humility. This is truly a lost virtue in our culture. Which is kind of odd, given that our culture is also supposed to be so tolerant and accepting and and just living and let living. We're not very humble, though. To walk worthy of our call to be disciples is to live together in a way that isn't just focused on ourselves and our preferences. It's to live and worship together in a way that isn't focused on fault-finding and nitpicking to be humble, to admit, I don't know everything yet, I'm not there yet myself, I understand, it makes sense, other people are not there either. Gentleness. There's a time and a place to speak up about something that's not right, to correct a brother or sister if that's needed. But it should be done in gentleness and care, because the goal is actually to work toward a solution, not just to prove you're right and prove a point. Make yourself feel better by comparison. Patience. Ooh, again, a really lost virtue in our instant gratification society. We just, we're so used to moving on to the next thing if our desire is not satisfied and satisfied quickly enough. We we complain about the internet being slow now if there's a lag of more than about one second between clicking that link and it actually coming up. The uh, time was you had to wait like a minute. Time was you had to wait for a letter to come to you in the mail. Just got to get faster and faster. We would, we would do really well to cut one another a little bit of slack here in the patient's department. Resist that instant gratification attitude with one another as we live it out, live out the body together. Bearing with one another in love. In Paul's context, of course, that probably had to do a lot with Jews and Gentiles and trying to live together even though we had pretty different customs and ways of doing things, but living together in a way that was the one body. That might not be the case for us, but we probably don't have to think for more than about 30 seconds to think of somebody that uh, you find them annoying or you find their preferences on this or that annoying and they're different than yours Can we disagree on things that aren't that big of issues in a spirit of love, though? Not just in a gritting your teeth and bearing it or rolling your eyes when they're not looking, but actually in a spirit of love and recognizing that we are a body, we are different, we have different tastes and personalities. Because that goes into the next thing, maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Having the Holy Spirit active and working in our lives is a theological reality. So at one level, the unity of the Spirit should be a theological reality as well. But at another level, it's something we can choose or choose not to participate in. It's something we can choose to maintain or to reject. And Paul wants us to do the former, and not just out of a duty, but he says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So why does this matter? All of it clearly does. Unity is a concept clearly embedded in the, in the deep fabric of our faith and of our Lord. The oldest and the most basic confession in our scriptures, right, is hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Paul pulls this out in a number of areas. Some of this is, might be material from a confession that Christians would have recited together, but look at all the things here that are, that are supposed to be characterized by unity or oneness. One body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One, 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 one. And this serves two purposes. This focus on oneness, it serves a unifying purpose. Because it means that we're all supposed to be in this together. But the focus on oneness, it also serves kind of a, a, a defining purpose, right? It doesn't just unify us together. It also sets us apart, right? There's one faith and one Lord, not a whole bunch of other truths and ways. There's one. It sets us apart and it brings us together. United around our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how do we do this? We've seen the call, walk worthy. We've seen what that looks like, humility and gentleness and patience. We've seen why it matters, because our God is a God of unity. Our faith is a faith of unity. So what do we do? How how do we work that out? What, what if we're struggling with it? I don't know. Thankfully, thankfully, God realized that this probably wasn't going to be easy for us, and so he took steps to make it possible. We start to see this already in verse 7. Paul says there that grace was given to each one. and the Greek word we usually translate grace, as in the theological idea of undeserved favor, is, is charis, and actually it often just meant gift in common usage, in Paul's time. And it's the same word that Paul frequently uses to describe what we often call spiritual gifts. And it's the, the word from whence we get the term charismatic, right? You know that term. Unfortunately, we often use it really badly. The term charismatic has often been, has been twisted from being an actual theological term, talking about the gifts that God gives to empower his people into something... It's taken to mean like a style of worship. Characterized often by spontaneity and loudness and emotional fervor and physical demonstrativeness and so forth over against those that aren't like that, that are more subdued. Or or we apply it to certain gifts and call them charismatic, the ones that are more spectacular, healing and speaking in tongues and so forth. Those that seem to have more of a supernatural element. And then, and then over here, well, there's the regular spiritual gifts, the, the serving and the administration and the giving and the faithfulness. But that's not right. There, there's no such thing as charismatic gifts and non-charismatic gifts. There's only charismatic gifts. That's what the word means. All the gifts of the Spirit are charismatic gifts. That's what the term is about. Loud and spontaneous or quiet and structured worship can both be charismatic or not, depending on whether it's empowered by the Spirit. All spiritual gifts are charismatic gifts. That's what the word means. Here's the thing, though. In other passages, Paul talks about the gifts in terms of those those abilities, those those things we might call supernatural abilities or skills, prophesying, speaking in tongues, faithfulness, all those things. That's not where he goes in this passage, though. It's where we might expect him to go when we talk about God giving gifts. But here, he actually talks about gifts in terms of of, of roles or offices of leadership in the church. Apostles, pastors, or shepherds, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Now, it's beyond the scope of one morning's message to get into the specifics of what each of these are and how they're different from one another, But the main thing is to look at the reality that these each have one common goal. God gave all of these roles, all of these people to his body for one specific purpose, which is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's why God gave these roles, offices, whatever term you like in the church. Here's the deal, friends and I hope we are still all friends when this is over, the point of having pastors and whatever other title you put, elders, deacons, ministers, whatever whatever term you want to apply to the people that lead a local church, is not to provide the body with the work of ministry. Do you follow? The biblical model is not that you have a group of people over here called pastors or clergy or whatever who dispense the ministry and then over here you have this bigger group called lay people that receive the ministry. That's not the biblical model of of how this is meant to work. And we might nod and say, oh that sounds good pastor, it sounds good. But I'm not convinced we always really believe it. I can fall into the trap as easy as anyone else. You see, our minds and our souls have been so shaped by our consumer culture and our performance culture that when you come here to gathered worship, you sit in chairs, you see people up front here leading the singing, preaching, reading the scripture, praying, whatever, it is just so hard not to go to performance, not to go to consumer mindset. But the church is not here to entertain you. That's not the church's calling. And that's not the calling of the people who lead the church. And it's not the calling of those who are a part of the church. Pastor Andrew's been reading this new book by Francis Chan and almost every day in the last week or so, he comes to me he's like, this is so good, this is so exciting. Chan's just like, he's laying it out there. And so I've been, I've been drinking from that well a little bit. One of the quotes that uh, Pastor Andrew read to me had to do with uh, that church leaders are not really massage therapists, but personal trainers, right? The church is not a, is not a spa, but more like a gym, Here's another metaphor, kind of building on that, that I'd like to park on. It has to do with the concept of being fed, which is a term we often use in church and Christian circles. The church is not a restaurant. The church is a cooking school. Church leaders are not chefs and waiters. They're cooking teachers. You see the difference? At a restaurant, you go... You receive, you give the order, someone takes it, someone makes the food, someone brings you the food, someone takes the dishes away and cleans them. If the food was good, maybe you'll be back. If the service was good, maybe you'll leave a little tip. But the job of the people running the place at a restaurant is to feed you. In fact, one of the reasons that restaurants even exist is so that you don't have to cook for yourself. If you don't feel like cooking, you go to a restaurant and someone does it for you. And the money that's exchanged is the fair exchange of goods. We all understand that. But at a cooking school, it's not like that. You go and you participate. Sure, there's probably going to be a sit-down and instructional time about, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on this aspect of cooking today. There's some instruction there. But then you get to work. You participate in making the food, serving the food to one another frequently. Uh, You often have to participate in the cleaning up afterward because that's an important way that you learn about things like food safety and care and maintenance of your cooking tools. The job of the people running the place at a cooking school is not to feed you, but to help you learn to feed yourself and hopefully even to feed others. The reason a cooking school exists is not so that you don't have to cook, it's so that you can do it better and maybe even develop a love for doing so. Equip the saints for ministry. Teach them, equip them, give them skills. Help them organize themselves so that they can actually do the ministry so that they can build up the body. So the aim is never comfort, but growth. That's where Paul goes next. Build up the body. So what does that look like? Paul provides some explanation, and in good fashion, he provides, okay, here's what it looks like, here's what it doesn't look like. Positive and negative. Positively, it looks like becoming a full-grown person. There's been a lot of talk in our culture about how adolescence has become this extended thing. Who's heard something about adolescence being extended now? Like instead of being a grown-up at like 21, now you're waiting until you're in your 30s to be a grown-up. In previous generations, you had till 18 or so to be an adolescent, and then typically you went away and did something else apprenticeship, or military service, or college and you did that till you were 21 or 22, and then by that point, you kind of went and did adult things. At least that was the expectation got married, got a job, started a family, all that stuff. But now we hear. Uh, 30 is the new 20, and people are waiting longer and longer to kind of get into adult responsibilities. Sometimes they just kind of wait indefinitely. I'm sure we all know some people like that. And instead of doing responsible things, participating in those traditional markers of adulthood, some people are kind of content just to sit around being snarky about everything that's wrong with the world and not actually really doing much about it. Now, again, that's perhaps a bit of an overgeneralization and some pot shots even at my own generation here. But so much of what's going on in our wider culture seeps into our attitude of what we bring to our churches. And so we have too many people in the world that are just content in a spiritual sense to remain adolescents as well. Remain, not necessarily baby Christians. Baby Christians are at least kind of lovable in a way. Adolescents, that can get annoying. So Paul says, don't do that. If a local congregation, if a body of faith is to be mature and strong, the people that make it up need to be mature and be on a process of maturing. Positively as well, being mature looks like imitating Christ. And just in case we're ever tempted to think, oh, I'm not one of those adolescent Christians. I'm a grown-up Christian. Just remember that the way you measure that is is looking at Christ, not at your fellow brothers and sisters and be like, I'm doing way better than he is. No, it's to look at Christ and see what Christ looks like. Pretty sure that none of us are going to be like, "Ah, I got that, I got that down. None of us is going to get to a place where we can stop working on this. The Apostle Paul even said he didn't. So those are the positive things. Negatively, I mean, this should be pretty obvious. Positively, it means looking like a grown-up. Negatively, it means leaving spiritual childhood behind. I think it was C.S. Lewis who distinguished between childlike, which is a mostly positive quality, and childish, which was kind of a negative quality, especially if you weren't a child anymore. It seems to be the primary thing Paul is pointing to about being childish that we should outgrow has to do with a lack of commitment. This comes out in lots of ways in kids and teens. Some of you who are a little younger or maybe are in that stage of life yourself, you know, right, one week you'll be super excited about your sport, and the next week, oh, I, I don't know if I'm into that anymore. I want to I play my guitar or my video games. You know this as moms and dads too, right? Even of little kids and of teens, sometimes it's all you can do just to keep them focused on the thing that last week they were begging you to let them be a part of. And two weeks later, I don't want to do that anymore, Mom. I don't want to do that, Dad. I don't want to go on my lesson. Right? They were so excited. I, I want a puppy. I want a puppy more than anything in the whole wide world. And you get the puppy, and well, Junior, you have to promise to feed him and walk him and clean up after him, take him outside to do his business, and a couple weeks later, puppy's kind of been forgotten about. He's not as exciting as he was before. We we all know this. And again, this is a real-life example, but it happens in a spiritual sense. And Paul prays here, right, that we would not be just blown around from thing to thing to thing like children or adolescents but that we would be mature and willing to commit to what we know to be true. We've seen it in peer pressure with kids too. I'm sure you've been there You've raised kids, you know that they're there. They're just willing to go along with the crowd and do whatever, whoever they're with. That's kind of the flavor that they take on. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't be blown around by every shifting wind of doctrine or every new idea that comes out there. Be, part of being a grown-up is having the kind of self-control and long-term thinking that doesn't get caught up in this sort of restlessness. And Paul says it applies on a spiritual level. We tend to think, and maybe because it's our context here, it's educational, that being mature often has a lot to do with how much you know. Learn more facts, be a more mature Christian. Paul says, not exactly. He says it's about constancy and faithfulness and commitment to the things that you already know to be true. It's not just to know what you believe, it's to stick to what you believe. It's to be faithful with what you've been given. So let's review where we've been before we conclude. Paul calls his readers, of course he calls us, to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling that we've received. That, that is a way that resembles or corresponds to the calling that he's placed on our lives. And this is primarily seen in how we live together as the family of God. Humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. And this matters Because our faith is a faith of unity and a foundational aspect of who our Lord in his own character is. And then Paul reminds us that we've been given gifts from God's grace in order to make this possible. In other places, he talks about these gifts in terms of abilities. But here, he really emphasizes these gifts in terms of the people that he has placed around us, who lead us and guide us. Specifically, he says that leaders in the church are there to equip the people to do the work of ministry, not to do it for them. And that's going to be a big shift for us in our rather consumer-driven culture. But it's a shift we need to make if we're to become mature Christians. A, A big part of growing up and being an adult is you learn to do things for yourselves, not just to depend on mom and dad or your older brothers and sisters to do it for you. Because maturity is not about how much you know, but how faithful you are in sticking with what you know. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to finish with the words that Paul finishes with. He says that the end goal, if, if this is working well, if we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling, if those that lead us are helping us and equipping us to do the work of ministry, then what should happen is that the body should build itself up in love it should become a self-sustaining system without just this constant you know having to keep inputting into it to keep the thing going along it should become a self-sustaining system that builds itself up in love i'm trying to be really careful about how i say this because i fear it could be really easily misunderstood right the the lord knows you know and i know that I am not a perfect pastor. but here's the thing, no matter how good I got at this, I could not build the body up in love on my own. I could not do that. Not even if, if Grace and Andrew and the rest of the staff and the volunteers helped me with it. That's still not enough for a little dedicated group to actually build the body up in love. And I don't believe, at least according to this passage, that that's the calling of those that lead a church. I think my calling, our calling, as I see it in this passage, is to equip equip and inspire us to do the work of ministry and to build one another up. I'm not saying this because I want to make excuses for myself or I just want to, you know what, I'm just going to go chill in my office. Why don't you guys do all the work? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying this because I need your help. If we're going to make this happen in our community, if we're going to have a body that is building itself up in love, we need to care for one another. We need to build one another up. We as the church staff and leaders need everyone to partner together, partner with us, partner with one another to actually make this happen. Friends, if we're going to walk worthy, that is to say in a manner that corresponds with the calling that we've been given in a way that corresponds to what Scripture teaches us, then we have to have an understanding of the body of Christ that corresponds with what Scripture teaches us. Because the place where the calling is walked out is in the body, in the local community. I'll try to say that with, a, with fewer words. If our walk is going to resemble what Scripture describes, then our understanding of the body will have to resemble what scripture describes because that's where our calling is walked out so what can we do to build one another up some of you may already have a pretty good idea where you're like yeah i've been thinking of getting involved in this or that area and i just haven't there's probably your answer right there but what can you do here's some really basic things Maybe you wouldn't even think of it this way, but pay attention to the kind of language you use to talk about yourself and your relationship to your local congregation. D- does it start to sound like a, like a me-them kind of thing? Oh, the church should do such and such, as though you're not really a part of it. Watch out if you find yourself talking or thinking in that way. Remember, you're part of the church because we are all one body. If you have this idea for something that should be happening in the church, maybe the Lord's given that to you because you're part of the answer. Here's one. Do you view care and encouragement from members of the congregation as care and encouragement from your church? Or do you only view it as care from your church if it happens from somebody that has a title? The Bible says that people caring for one another, this equals the saints doing the work of the ministry that we heard about in this passage. It's building the body up in love. Caring for one another is the church caring for its own, building itself up in love. Are you involved? Are you using your gift, your skills, your talents, your time to build up the body in this community? I hear a lot Frequently, I hear it coming out of my own mouth about being so busy, so busy, so busy with this, so busy with that, got all this going on. What is it we're busy with? Is it building up the body? Are we busy with building up the body? Are we busy with encouraging one another, helping the body to build itself up in love, together, individually, being a disciple? Remember, Paul's big overarching goal here is walk Worthy. Walk worthy of the calling that you've been given. I'm just going to leave you with this. I've given a few examples. There's many more. But a way to maybe discern that this week is to think when you, when you have a decision to make, or even better, when you don't have a decision to make, when you're just kind of going along on autopilot, maybe try to shake yourself out of that a little bit and say, is this really walking worthy of my calling or is this just wasting my time? Is this actually something that's building up the body? Is this actually walking out my calling? Will this or that help us walk worthy of our calling? Will this or that build up the body? That is not a bad criteria to ask of ourselves as we go about the day-to-day life, the week-to-week life that's in front of us as we leave this place. Because it can make so much sense here oh, yeah, that makes great sense. Yeah, let's do it. It's a little harder when you're out there and the the choices you have to make and Netflix just wants to keep playing the next episode in the series and the next one after that and the next one after that. When there's all kinds of things that are vying for your attention that you could be doing, ask yourselves, is this walking worthy of the calling that I've been given? Is this helping to build the body? Will this contribute to our body being able to build itself up in love? Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word defines what the ministry in a local church looks like. It's a reminder to me as, as I seek to live out my own calling and may it be a reminder to all of us as we seek to live out our calling together to be your body. We, we know, Lord, that when we look at how our, our actual walk corresponds to our calling, we probably do see something that has sort of a resemblance but falls short. And so we pray for your spirit to work in us to make that walk correspond more and more closely to our calling, more and more closely to the way our Savior Jesus walked and talked. May you fill us with, with fresh energy from your spirit, fresh willingness to ask ourselves these sorts of questions on a regular basis. Am I walking worthy? Is this going to help me to walk worthy? Is this going to help our body build itself up these are big questions Lord these are not things we can achieve on our own either but we pray that by your grace and your Holy Spirit at work among us that we can go from this place and and live it out be your body not just here when we gather for worship but out there Lord, may we walk faithfully and worthily as we leave this place, as we go about our day-to-day lives in the week ahead. May we feel that what has happened here was a real meeting with you where we have been transformed in some way to be sent forth to be your servants and your disciples in the world around us wherever we go. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things as we look to him. Amen. Let's stand together one more time as we respond.